to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. On this episode, I spoke with Njemi Njai, a photographer, filmmaker, and multimedia producer. Njemi grew up in Pittsburgh before heading to Washington University in St. Louis to earn a BA in Film and Media Studies. Njemi describes her primary focus as documenting the everyday experiences of groups whose experiences are misrepresented and erased. She recently won the Pittsburgh Center for the Arts Emerging Artists Award and has her own video production company, Eleven Stanley Productions. I first saw Jimmy's Powered by Grace videos and reached out to learn more about her and her work. We talk about abstraction, Spike Lee's Black Klansman, and thinking about how to exist in white spaces. This interview is short and sweet, so I hope you enjoy it. This really strange room overlooking most of Oakland. And um, yeah, thank you for coming and talking with me. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, why don't we just start off with how your day's been going? My day's been pretty good. Yeah. Started off, actually started off oversleeping. So that was a little stressful, but uh, had a meeting at the Ace Hotel and then went to my studio to do a little bit of work. And now I'm here with you. Mm-hmm. And then I will be going right back to work afterwards. You're going back to um, Noah Place? I'm probably actually going to go shoot. Okay. I have, I'm probably going to be shooting just out in the streets for a okay. couple hours after this. Yeah. Do you have a, do you have a um, particular goal when you're shooting right for this particular project or? Not quite. I'm kind of trying to tap into it as mm-hmm. I go. Um, typically I, I shoot people um, when I do like street photography, but um, I think this time I'm looking for a mix of people and place. Um, I guess before we go into that, why don't you um, talk about briefly or however long you want about the type of work you do? All right. Um, so I'm a multimedia producer. I primarily work in photo and video filmmaking. Um, so I kind of have two sides to my work. I have a production company called Eleven Stanley Productions where I do commercial work for like nonprofits, small businesses, creatives, kind of telling their story via like photo or video. Where did that name come from? So 11 Stanley, uh, my mom grew up on 11th Avenue in Homestead, PA, Mm -hmm. and my dad grew up on Stanley Street Mm -hmm. in the Gambia, or Mm -hmm. Banjul, the Gambia. And so it's kind of just about like bringing people together, um, cultures together, but through media. And also I figured probably nobody else had that name, so I could get the domain pretty easily. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, you know, it, it helps. So yeah, um, so I do kind of like the commercial work to make money. And then um, I have like an independent practice where I do um, some like exhibition and public art yeah. and like installation work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just saw your a few of your photographs in uh, Future Tenants. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you had a show there. Yeah, that was cool. Uh, Christina Lee curated a show called I'm Not With Him. Mm-hmm. Um, so like all uh, female uh, artists. So yeah, that was a cool experience. Yeah. 
so uh, where'd you grow up? How did you get into the arts? I grew up here in Pittsburgh mm -hmm. in Stan Heights. Mm -hmm. um, my dad is an artist, uh, so he's a painter. painter? He's a he's a multi hyphenate. Okay, <laughs> so he's a painter, fiber artist. He's a photographer. He makes clothes. Mm -hmm. He kind of is a dabbler, but he's good at many disciplines. I'm a dabbler too. Yeah. You know, I think, <laughs> I, I think a little bit of that rubbed off on me. Yeah. Um, and my mom is also a really skilled photographer as well. Uh -huh. And so I was an athlete growing up. I was like really into school and really into sports. What sports? Basketball. Well, growing up, like little, little, it was like gymnastics, soccer, yeah. swimming. Uh -huh. And then I eventually I played basketball. Yeah. Me too, like, until I stopped growing. And then know, I was like, I, I'm too short. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You could have been weaving through defenses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Swatting passes and stuff. But um, yeah, I, you know, I took a photography class uh -huh. um, in, I think, the summer after seventh grade. Uh -huh. And we were in the dark room. We were just like wandering the streets of Manchester, taking pictures during the day. And I loved it. But after that, I didn't really take many pictures again until, so let's see, if that was 2001, I kind of put a camera down until like 2015. Okay. And um, in terms of like still photos, mm -hmm. um, but it was always something I really enjoyed um, and I'm glad I was able to like work my way back towards. Yeah. Yeah. Does that answer the question? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> How, what, was it, what was it like growing up in Pittsburgh? I had a good experience growing up here. Um, I'm curious because I only arrived in 2013 mm -hmm. in Pittsburgh. Every, every Everyone I talked to, I mean, even when I arrived in 2013, has changed. But even I can't imagine what it was like back then. Yeah, I mean, it. it so let's see, I graduated from high school in 2006. Uh -huh. And I can honestly say every time I came back, you know, for holidays or for a summer, I would feel like the differences. Yeah. And so the Pittsburgh I grew up in for sure is not the Pittsburgh of today. Yeah. And sometimes I still like I'll be driving through like East Liberty or um even like downtown and I'll still kind of like see or feel things as they were. Mm -hmm. And it's just like it is not that anymore. Yeah. And there's good and bad to that. But in terms of like my personal upbringing, I had a really good childhood. My parents, yeah, I don't know. It was like one of those we ate dinner at the kitchen table yeah, yeah, every night right, together right, um right. my parents are like super involved and supportive yeah so just like a lot of and they're both artists which is sort of amazing right yeah so my mom is in education okay. management and my dad was kind of like a creative before it was like cool to be a creative um <laughs> so there was just like a lot of art and music and good food yeah in the house yeah um so yeah we had a we had a i enjoyed yeah my childhood yeah and then from there, you went to uh, college. Where did you go to college? Yeah, I went to Washington University in St. Louis. Uh -huh. um, How was that? I had a great experience at yeah. WashU. I had a great social experience at okay. WashU. <laughs> <laughs> and I had, so I thought, um, you know, being an athlete and being hurt a lot, I was always in physical therapy. And so I oh thought boy. I wanted to be, and I was like in, I feel like I grew up in the era where um, they started to want to involve girls in STEM a lot. Okay. And so I was in like- Now it's STEAM. Now it's STEAM, right? Yeah. I missed my calling. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was in all these like pre-engineering and like STEM programs and I didn't love it, okay. but that was like the thing that you were encouraged to do. And I wouldn't say like my 
parents like push that on me. That's just something that I was like, okay, like, yeah, sure. I'll be able to find a job. It seems like a secure route to take. Yeah. And so that's what I did. So I thought I um, was going to major in biology, wanted to, you know, go to grad school for physical therapy. And I took one class freshman year, history of African-American cinema. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, bump that. I'm going to be a film major. Oh, wow. And that so, must have been a great class. It was cool. It well, was a good class. Yeah. It just, it was something I had never thought about before. Mm. It's like, I knew that I like, I always like thrived in English and the humanities. Right. It just didn't seem like something tangible to, to major in. Right. 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 But, and I was like afraid, I was like, oh, you know, what will my parents think of me? And they were just like super supportive. They were like, you know, do what you got to do. Yeah. Um, It's shocking to hear that from parents who do do art, right? You know, or is art involved in the arts? Yeah. It's always, I always feel like a lot of people that I meet, if their parents aren't in the arts, it seems even more intangible because, you you know, the people that, so you know, supposedly are supporting you aren't even in it. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, I don't know, we never really had that discussion of what they thought, (laughs) (laughs) or if we did, I I can't remember, of what they thought of me pursuing a film degree. I didn't end up utilizing it right away. And, you know, the more I reflect on it, the more I think about how my experience, like my academic experience in undergrad wasn't the greatest, just because you know, there was not a lot in the curriculum that reflected my experiences. Mm -hmm. And so I found myself like really enjoying and thriving in my TV classes and kind of like new media, um, because that's where, you know, you saw more like black and brown faces. That's where, you know, the stories were tied a little bit more to the populace. Compared to film. Right. Film being, you know, very highbrow, you know, film theory and criticism, Mm -hmm. which is what the bulk of my degree was. It's very academic. It is very white male centric and dominated. Citizen Kane. I mean, Citizen Kane. Godfather. uh, French auteur, you know, third wave or left bank. All that stuff. You know, um, who else? Uh, Godard. yeah. Yeah. I mean... And it was like, okay, this is cool, but I just, it, I did not relate yeah. to a lot of the film content. Yeah. Maybe not like on an aesthetic level, mm-hmm. but like thematically, it just, it felt like a miss and I yeah. didn't really, um, yeah, it just felt like there was kind of a disconnect. Yeah. So, um, not to mention, I mean, I went to school with like a lot of affluent folks. So, whereas a lot of people could take those unpaid internships, mm-hmm. you know, in yeah. New York, LA, or were from New York in right, LA right. Um, and could stay at home right. or, you know, have their summers funded. Yeah. You know, I, I was working during the summers. Yeah. Um, so that created a little bit of a barrier in terms of jumping into mm-hmm. film straight away after school. Yeah. Yeah. And then so from there you, so after graduating, did you come back to Pittsburgh? No. So actually I taught three years of high school English mm-hmm. um, after undergrad. I stayed in St. Louis, worked probably, High school English, you said? Yeah, high school. Worked probably 15 minutes away from campus. Oh, nice. Um, but in a very different environment. Yeah. You know, but it's actually cool because a couple of the kids that I taught, they're twins actually, uh-huh. they ended up going to law school uh-huh. at my undergrad. So that's, a, yeah, that's like a cool story. But um, I taught high school English. I coached basketball, a little bit of track. 
And I was glad to stay in St. Louis just because I got to be involved in like the community on a different level and like learn about the city right. in a different level. Because I think when you go to undergrad, you can be very like insulated. Oh, absolutely. It was that your experience? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you don't really get to get out and about. And I think St. Louis provided me a lot of things that Pittsburgh didn't and couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, just because or some of those things um you know there's there's a lot of black people in St. Louis it's it's a predominantly black city um and so you know you feel that and mm-hmm. that was something that growing up in Pittsburgh even though like my immediate community you know my quote unquote tribe was like super cultured and you know there was a lot of like love and nurturing yeah, from yeah. predominantly black folks when i looked out into the city yeah i didn't necessarily see that right. like i didn't see my close community necessarily like reflected um in the larger pittsburgh community but right. in st louis you know there was there was a lot more of that yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah no it's nice cuz i think I mean, especially when you stay after school, you kind of are familiar, but not familiar, right? Like you're insulated, but you also kind of have the framework of how a certain way of living in that city is like. And then once you're sort of shoot off, you know, as as a ex-student, basically, you have the resources to kind of sort of navigate, depending how you spent your time previously. Mm-hmm. But then you can... Um, concentrate more on learning more about the city without having to figure out the city as a, as a new, I guess, citizen or new, new human. Yeah. being. A, yeah. Your residency status yeah. changes. Yeah. And then you have to float a little bit more on your own because, you know, you might have some friends still around, but you don't, you maybe don't have like all your friends. Yeah. Like yeah. You, there's not that, um, that crutch so much anymore you have to really figure things out and I guess that's just how it is in the transition from like undergrad or grad school to like the general population yeah yeah yeah. I don't know how'd you find your transition from like undergrad to postgrad uh rough I mean so what I I personally didn't know I wanted to do art I kind of fell into it and for my parents their hope was always like oh you know get get good at art get into a good university and then switch majors, right? And so my art, I would argue, helped me get into Cornell. And then their hope was I would go to Cornell and then switch to something else. Like what? Something useful. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, something that society deems useful. So engineering, I don't even know. They they were just like happy that I got into, you know, uh, university. And I didn't know if I really liked art, and so I, but I wanted to travel. So I, I applied for some teaching jobs in Korea, got them and they flew me over and had a stipend to live there. And I didn't have to work that much because it was basically teaching after school. So I had basically the whole day to myself and then only taught from six to nine. And that was my way of traveling, I guess. And so I did that for two years and then moved to LA and I did web development. And then by the second year that I was in LA, sort of saw my life flash ahead in the sense that like, oh, like I could see myself doing this for 20 years. And I don't know if I want to, I kind of enjoy it, but, and I think I'd also given myself space away from what I perceived to be art in undergrads, you know, and all the baggage that comes with it. Like you not making the kind of work that you like or, you also just not being a mature human being. Mm. And so I then kind of made the leap to like try to do art again and then apply to grad school and to see where it went. 
Yeah, I think that's that's real. I mean, there's something to maturing as a person. And it's like, I think back to who I was in undergrad and I'm like, who was that? Who yeah, was that person? I, I want to smack myself in undergrad. <laughs> like, you need to do this, this, and this. You know, stop wasting your time on this. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of time wasting, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was, I'm very, I'm very glad that I taught and just, you know, was able to get to know like my kids and my coworkers and just kind of see like the passion they have for education. Yeah. Yeah. I think teaching taught me how to be like assertive on a different level. Like I was terrified. I was terrified to, um, to start teaching. Students Um, can, can sniff it out. My first day teaching SAT, they asked me that question, even though, uh, you know, I was told to not say that and just act like you've always taught. But yeah. They asked, that, I don't know, so they, you can sniff it out. I think that, I mean, I guess I had a good game face or a good poker face. Oh, um, they, they thought you were like an uh, experienced teacher? Oh, no. I mean, I looked like I was 12. They knew. <laughs> I mean, my kids knew that it was my first year, but I think I was, I, I will not say I had like a perfect year by yeah. any means, but I was able to like work it out. I had a pretty good first year teaching and an awful second year. <laughs> because like the students? <laughs> you know, every year you just get a different, mm-hmm. you, get, you get a different vibe, like the kids, yeah, yeah. you know, you have different relationships. Yeah, yeah. Um, overall, I, I would say I had a, like a pretty positive teaching experience. And yeah, I don't, I was able to be like, okay, like I'm here. I won't, yeah. I was able to establish a, a rapport. I think. Yeah. It's a strange, like, it's a strange sort of out of body experience that you're constantly navigating because you need to be assertive. But you don't want to be like this dictator because you, exactly. you kind of are. <laughs> yeah. You, <laughs> you know? know, and you're trying to navigate, you're trying to create ideally a relationship with these people, mm-hmm. but there is also a hierarchy and there's all these different things that you think about almost in real time. You yeah. know, and that's, I think. That was the hardest part, I think, to like absorb and then learn how to use. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of what my focus was, was like building like a positive classroom culture in which it was like, okay, when you're in here, like we're here to work. I have high expectations of you. I want you to have high expectations of yourself. And a lot of that came from like my athletic background, Mm -hmm. just from a very young age being held to very rigorous standards. Yeah, And like, I think a lot of self motivation comes Mm -hmm. out of that and by the end you know I think that especially for the kids that I had for like several years they were able not to say that I like empowered them because I like I really don't like that term but I think we were able to build a relationship such that it was like okay we know NJAC cares about us like we're gonna do the work and I think hopefully it started it paid some dividends right 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 and then so from teaching what happened after? So my in my third and final year of teaching, it was like my 25th birthday. My birthday's in February. And I, for some reason, I, I remember this so clearly. I woke up like the Saturday after I turned 25. It was like uh, seven o'clock in the morning. And I was like, oh my God, I need to go on a round the world trip. It mm. was like really, it was very out of out of the blue. And I was like, I don't know where this came from, but I'm going to marinate on it for a little bit. Thought about it that whole weekend, probably like for the next week. Um, And it just didn't go away. And so, you know, I ended up talking it over with my family. They're like, well, yeah, I mean, if you could pay for it, do your thing. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I just felt called to do it. I didn't have any like 
real financial commitments. I mean, I just bought a car, but it was like, okay, I can work that out. Didn't have a family, didn't have a mortgage. Um, And so I just started to research how I could travel. Um, And I ended up taking three months. Um, I backpacked from Lisbon, Portugal, through like Southern Portugal, Spain, into Morocco. And then I went to West Africa for the first time to visit my dad's family in Senegal and the Gambia. Um, both, he has family in both places. Yeah, okay. so he's from the Gambia, but I stayed with some family in, in Dakar. Mm-hmm. And it was just like a really intimidating, not not necessarily just the West African part, like meeting my family, but just the whole trip. Um, I had traveled abroad before, but it was just like, okay, okay, girl, here you are out in the world. Like, yeah. I never felt so much like anxiety. Yeah. You know, you're traveling to places where you don't speak the language. Yeah. And I'm like a almost six foot tall black woman. At the time I had like really long locks. So it was just like a lot of the places I was traveling in, people probably, not all, there's black people everywhere, but you know, I wasn't probably like your normal quote unquote yeah. backpacker, but I was you know, galloping through, you know, and it was, it was like eye opening. And I think I was, that's where some of that assertiveness from the classroom and kind Mm. of some of that agency carried through. Like, I don't think I would have been able to do that trip straight out of undergrad. And I don't think I would want to do that trip right now. Oh, you wouldn't? (laughs) I would, but you know, when you do it differently, when you're 25, you're willing to like, you know, Cut some corners yeah, that yeah. at 30, like, yeah. it's not much difference time-wise. It's like, it's five years, but, you know, I've seen a little more. And it's not that I'm, like, balling by any means, but it's just like, you know, you want a certain yeah. level of comfort. Yeah, yeah, I know. I totally understand. <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. the, like, eight-person hostel room is, like, not how you yeah, want yeah, yeah. to set your, yeah, your situation Yeah, a little, a little bit more for, like, a, you know, one-bedroom hostel or something. Something, just yeah. like a slight bump. But I'm really glad I did it. Yeah, it. I would not change that at all. Cool. And then from there. Oh right, you did ask that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, or, or we keep talking about Euro tripping. Oh no. Slash Africa tripping. Right. Uh, yeah. Like, well, I guess I do. I, what was that like meeting your dad's family? It was a really positive experience. I mean, I had met like some of my uncles. I'd met some of my family before because they'd come over to the states, but just they, kind of being surrounded by. So much, so much family yeah. um, was awesome, and yeah, I don't know. Do they speak English? Mm-hmm. You can communicate because, like, like, I see in my mind, I can't. I, I would have a more difficult time because I don't speak Cantonese that well. So, like, I could visit my family, and I have, but it's there's like a barrier that I'm unable to break for obvious reasons. Yeah, and that's tough. I mean, Grant, I would love to speak Wallof, mm-hmm. but I don't, and I definitely feel that. Because not all of, so I mean, a lot of my family was educated, you know, in Europe yeah. or in America. So, you know, there's that fluency. You know, some don't speak as much English. Um, and so it's always that feeling like, dang, like I wish, like, I wish I would have learned more Wallop while I was there. Because, you know, you want to be able to communicate fully. Yeah. So I guess I just got to go back and do like an intensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like, okay, please, nobody speak English to me. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard though. It is. It's hard. It is. But yeah, they were just really warm and really welcoming. And it was it was like a pil- pilgrimage, I guess. It yeah, was just something yeah. I, I felt like I needed to do. And it was almost like both closing and opening a chapter. Mm. It was like something that let me 
it was kind of like a foray into like the rest of adulthood. Like mm-hmm. this is something you need to do to right, be right. able to like set off on the rest of your path. Yeah. Um, and then from there? Um, yeah, I came back to Pittsburgh. I thought I was, uh, I was pursuing like a, a job in education, like at a charter school in Chicago. Um, but then I was like, well, you know, I'd started doing some travel writing, um, like freelancing. And I was like, well, I have this film degree, you know, I've been getting this itch to work in media. So maybe I need to like really throw some, some weight behind that. Um, and so I was able to be connected to like a local director, started apprenticing with him. In Chicago still? No, no, no. This is here in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Probably like I got back Thanksgiving break, 2013, met him and started working with him probably January, 2014. So maybe like a month and change. Yeah. Right after the holidays. Um, and that kind of snowballed into me doing my, own freelance work, which eventually led to the company and, and right, like right, right, other right. opportunities. So I'm like way simplifying it. We don't need to go into the weeds, but yeah, <laughs> that yeah. was the progression. And so what are some of the projects that you've been doing since, I guess, 2013? <laughs> I mean, the one that I was most drawn to that I, when I first discovered you was the uh, Powered by Grace, Musings on Black Womanhood. I don't, I'm, I'm curious how that started. Um, yeah, you know, so in 2015, I applied for a grant. Well, I actually got a residency with Most Wanted Fine Art, which is a local gallery. Mm -hmm. Um, And Nina from Most Wanted was just like, hey, you know, do you want to do this residency? You can pretty much do whatever project you want. And at that point, I had been freelancing for like a year. And so I was kind of used to the client grind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, me? Do a project? Like I had never- You didn't apply. They, this was this was sort of offered to you? Right. So the that residency was just, you know, it came about through a conversation um, yeah. between the two of us. But I didn't know what I wanted to do. And as I thought about it and thought about, you know, being a Black woman in Pittsburgh, I just didn't see a lot of stories that I felt like reflected the experience- that I was having in the city and like reflected the people who I knew and was in contact with. And so it was just like, well, okay, girl, you have a camera. Like you can, you can add some of these stories to the like cultural landscape. Yeah. So I applied for the advancing black arts grant and got it. And that enabled me to get some equipment, you know, set up a website for the project. And it gave me just a little bit of financial breathing room Mm -hmm. to be able to focus on, how I wanted to like see the project out. So it ended up being a photo series and also like a five part video like series and exploration of like how black women were experiencing um, and like living out their lives in Pittsburgh. Um, And so that was like a really good opportunity. I don't even think I, I don't think I took it probably as far as it could have gone. Like I probably could have like marketed it a lot better, but it was, Really, it was a good opportunity to just, to just say, okay, like, you are capable of doing some things. Right. And, you know, you've, these women, like, actually shared their experiences with me. Like, they let me into their homes and their offices and let me take their pictures on the streets. And so that was, like, really humbling to see, like, okay, like, if you come to people in a real way and, like, you know, have a good heart and good intention, then people will like share some of themselves with you. So that was, yeah, that was like something that I still carry with me. Yeah. I'm just very humble by it. Yeah. So how did you choose those women? 
It was a mix. It was mixed. Um, like literally some women I rolled up to on the street and oh, really? I was like, yeah, I'd have to like sit in my car and like gas myself up. Like, okay, you're about to go walk up to total strangers because that's not really my nature. Some I knew or like wanted to get to know a little bit better. Yeah, so yeah. I reached out to, and, I'm, and pretty overwhelmingly people were, people agreed. I guess a lot of people just seemed like genuinely kind of caught off guard. Like you want to you want to know my story um, or you want to take my picture. Um, And so that was kind of eye opening as well, because I feel like, I mean, I can only speak for myself. I feel invisible a lot. And so I guess I just was part of the intention behind the project was Mm -hmm. working through my own invisibility and saying like, okay, if I can show these women, like look at all the ways that we can be in the world. And it's like something I always knew, but it was just a way to like, materialize that more like in a tangible external way yeah and visualize it and visualize it which is important yeah so that was kind of the gist of powered by grace and yeah from there more client works like some short docs um i did like a piece about my dad that got like some cool traction and yeah here we are now yeah yeah do you have anything that you've been working on in the future any future projects yeah the i think the future is all gonna like materialize in in like a month (laughs) it's just like several projects yeah i think end up converging so i've been working for the past two years about on a public art project in the hill district just about how different people have called the hill home um over the years been working on, well, pretty much just wrapped a documentary series about um, millennial women in Pittsburgh. It's six episodes. They're short. They're like baby ups. Yeah, They're like yeah. three minutes each. I think that's about people's tolerance. That's what like, I, that's that's sort of the the film length that I or I, video length that I've been sort of aiming for six to max 15 minutes yeah and it also depends on you know the space that they're going to be screened in these will be shared you know they'll be on youtube or Mm -hmm. vimeo so um i wanted to do uh some like neighborhood-based storytelling because i'm very interested in the connection between like place and people but again specifically through women and like women of the lens of like women of color Mm -hmm. i got named the emerging artist of the year for the pittsburgh center um for the arts the carol brown awards no oh so that is a thing yeah but this is different (laughs) um so center for the arts has the artist of the year and the emerging artist of the year the shows uh coincide it opens in like september so then what are you gonna show there some photographs (laughs) it'll it'll largely so i mean a lot of my practice has been like photo and video um i mean there's a lot of convergence there is on there right and stitching them i mean you know creating like a video is especially like digitally is is kind of a in-depth process Mm -hmm. in and of itself but i'm actually shooting this new body of work on film okay so do you have a dark room no. How do you how I have are you a doing? Secret back cave location where I'm processing that. Oh, okay. <laughs> but um it's bathroom. <laughs> yeah. It's been um I just it's like as we kind of hurl further into the digital realm, yeah. um, because I'm looking at the experiences of like black Pittsburghers and I'm looking at kind of documenting this very specific moment in time. It's like this liminal moment, I think, where there's just a lot of change and transition in the air. 
when we talk about change, I mean, the door swings both ways. And so I think that while there are some positive things going on, I think there's also like a lot of violence being committed in yeah. the like urban planning mm-hmm. and development space. Right. And that's not that's nothing new. Um, I mean, in Pittsburgh alone, we've seen this story play out a few times. Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of interested in like pressing pause a little bit Mm -hmm. um, and saying like, okay, well, how are Black Pittsburghers navigating this like contemporary historic moment? Yeah. And it felt like film was like shooting on film was just a very like kind of pure and honest way to do that. Yeah. So it's like a series. It's it's photos, but it's also like text um, derived from like oral histories and interviews um, because that's like what a lot of my practice is coming to involve as well. Like, conversation and like relationship building yeah yeah. um and really yeah just like hearing how people speak about and communicate about their own lives and how that reflects visually yeah I mean I'm drawn to that too I think for me storytelling is super important because I think it's the most tangible thing that you could do in terms of especially time-based and video-based mediums yeah because I've done some abstract videos but there's just so they can be hard. <laughs> yeah. And I I mean, I think about that a lot, especially being largely self-taught and not really having that like academic art experience or even like really fine art training. I think like, oh, you know, is my work not abstract enough? Like, mm-hmm. you know, the way my brain processes information and the the influences I have, like I'm very I mean, I look at a lot of Gordon Parks. I look like I you look like what? I look at a lot of like Gordon Parks oh, and yeah. Teeny Harris, mm-hmm. and um, you know, getting into the more kind of like representational and like Lorna Simpson and Carrie Mae Weems, but just photojournalism, like mm-hmm. and documentary photography. That is like that's my jam. I yeah. feel like that's what I'm drawn to. But there's always this like nagging part of my brain, like <sighs> like how do I bring in more abstraction? Like how do I? You, you want that? I I struggle with if that's necessary. Mm, like, is mm. that something? But then it's just like, well, I don't want to be that person who's just like looking for that external validation, you yeah, know, or looking yeah. for something that's gonna like put me in with yeah. the in crowd. Like, that's that's something that I like. I fight. Like, that's not something yeah, that I necessarily yeah. want to adopt in my own like headspace yeah. or practice. But at the same time, it's just like, okay, well, how can I push myself right. as a artist and as like a thinker? Like, what is a way to to incorporate text into documentary photography without just putting a blurb mm-hmm. next to the image? Yeah. And so that's something that like I'm very actively pursuing. Right. And it's like, what's the balance between research and kind of like looking at what other people are doing, yeah. but also like trying to cultivate that thought process in that discovery process within yourself. Yeah. So that's what I think about these days. Yeah. That's hard. That's hard. (laughs) I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think we always want what we don't have. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, I think I was mentioning to you last time that I always wanted my works to be more abstract because I felt like I was too self-controlled, you know, and I've, but then I, what helped me was like looking at what kind of abstraction, because abstraction is so broad. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, just someone eating an apple might not seem abstract, but if it's taken out of context, it can be a very abstract act, right? And then symbolically, eating an apple has a lot of meanings on it, but then depending where you place it uh, or how you shoot it, right? There's all these different things that can, that something that is so tangible and 
if you, th- if you just describe it as not an abstract thing, but it can take on abstract meaning. Yeah. And then there's also just like random color abstraction, right? And there's a lot of space in between. And then on the other hand, I think sometimes it's frustrating because at some point the abstraction can get not didactic enough, you know, in relationship to the message that I want, or at least it doesn't allow for my viewpoints to oftentimes show up Mm -hmm. in a clear form. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think me doing this podcast is a way for me to have that sort of, I don't want to say didactic, but like, this is what I'm thinking in a way that doesn't come through in my, my abstract narratives. Right. Right. You know, it's like, you know, uh, I feel like I've been having this conversation a few times in the last few days, but you know, there can be the, well, there is, or can be this gap between intention and reception. Yeah. And it's just like, you leave, you're always going to leave some of yourself on the page in the work, but it's, it's nice to have a chance, like another forum to be able to explain your point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It's and also, tough. and also intention for who, right? Right. Right. Cause we were just, I think we were just talking about black Klansmen. Yeah. And it's like, I'm still trying to figure out who the audience is supposed to be for. Yeah. I, I think on like this broad level, it's, well, I guess there are still people, I don't know how, but um, it seems there are people who were really buying into this post-racial narrative until very recently. Yeah. So until Cheeto Man, <laughs> I don't know if it was something directed at like those folks or kind of like the yeah. bleeding heart liberals. Yeah. Um, something to kind of like you know shake up that demographic. Right, right. Um, I mean, I think it could. There were maybe multiple audiences, but at the end of the day, that my takeaway, the message that came through most clearly for me was just like. Hey America or hey whoever like this country has been racist mm-hmm. it's still racist it's right. still kind of using these same tropes right. the same language the same imagery yeah. um to to oppress and uh, intimidate a lot of people so yeah i'm still kind of working through black Klansmen. yeah me too i yeah it's strange because I, 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 what I do, what I, there's like a spoilers ahead, but, <laughs> but uh, I think my favorite, I think the most impactful message was just tying directly David Duke to what the, what he is part of, mm-hmm. right? Like people sort of whitewashed it or like, I think it was mentioned like, you know, he's aiming to wear a suit and tie and not really talking about what the Klansmen are about. But mm-hmm. this is actually what it's about. Just keep wearing a suit and tie doesn't sort of wipe wipe it away, and that also history. But we are in, we inherently tied to the past, you know. Yeah, and I think that there's this. I mean, to your point, there's this real kind of like sanitation, and you know, in a lot of like reporting, there's this kind of like, well, you know, they're a person too. You know, they have friends. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They take their kids to, they you know, they carpool or, you know, they do th- these racist folks or, you know, these neo-Nazis, they do things that you yeah, do. And yeah. I don't understand, well, I won't say I don't understand, but it's very frustrating to see this kind of widespread effort to make people who are like violently 
you know, racist and, you know, xenophobic to, to make them, to normalize them. Yeah, yeah. I just, I don't understand that. Um, and I and I could definitely see like Black Klansmen as a pushback against that. Mm-hmm. For me, the most interesting message, and it's not something that I've seen come up a lot yeah. um, in like mainstream like review or criticism of the um, film, is you know when we think back to the election, what was it, fifty seven percent of like white women voting for Trump. I one of the main themes I picked out, and I know a lot of the people who I saw it with was kind of the complacency of a lot of white women mm-hmm. and what's going on. Yeah. What was her name? Colleen, the the wife of the Klansman. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's like literally by the end laid out in the street crying yeah, yeah, because, yeah. you know, go see the movie if yeah. you've made it this far and we haven't already spoiled it. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was interesting to me. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's, I think the issue that I saw a lot, especially in regards to how you're talking about humanizing, I think it's sort of like a, a logical red herring because anything about this a lot, right? When uh, Donald Trump, the, those those tapes came out about in, in, in the Hollywood, was it with the Hollywood reporter on oh, the bus? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then everyone's like, oh, well, all the Republicans backing it, like, oh, well, like, you know, I I have daughters, I'm married to a woman, or like when Roy Moore did they, uh, the same thing happen, but... And I feel like that's sort of talked a lot about in terms of race. Like I'm not a racist, so I can't say racist things, mm-hmm. but it's sort of like a red herring because it means you can't argue against, you're basically washing yourself of any wrongdoing by claiming you have a wife or you have daughters or you claim right. you're not racist, but then let's actually talk about what was said, right? Right. And why do you need like... Yeah, that's that's always a frustrating argument. Or, you know, it's uh, when something happens, like, involving, you know, racism, it's just like, well, I, you know, I have a black neighbor. Yeah. Or I have a black friend. Or immigration, you know. Yeah. My kids go to school yeah. with, you know, some, some Latino kids. You know, yeah, it's yeah, just like yeah. people feel like by placing themselves in proximity, yet still tangential yeah. to an issue, yeah. they, like, absolve themselves of being uh participating in that like oppressive system and we know it doesn't work like that right so i mean and also just and not just being in proximity but being part of that dialogue right um i think one of the things i that i notice the most within the art world is like me me just going to different schools going to these residencies is like usually there's like one or two token artists of color mm-hmm. and if it's an artist of color usually it's a man and then all the all the women are white and so like there's this sort of skewed idea of diversity and like what kind of diversity that you want but then i think the more insidious thing is because there's usually only one or two people of color there isn't a critical mass actually have a dialogue right i mean one of the things that i've noticed the most is like i've learned more about white queerness and white feminism than those folks learn about any sort of race dialogue because like I could sit in on a discussion and you just need two plus people who are white, queer, or feminist. And I can learn about that. Right. But like, if there's only one person of color, um, you can't, there isn't even a dialogue unless they ask. And usually they never ask. Right. And if they do, then you're, you're expected to be like the representation of, you know, your race or like all people of color. And it's just like, and then it also gets complicated because usually, I mean, this is sort of 
um, I, I've been trying to like push back against this, but as that token minority, you end up code switching so much that you basically become part of that white supremacist framework. Mm. You know, um, that's why I notice a lot in terms of like, as someone who is constantly in that kind of dialogue, you don't think so much about it unless you were to reach out on your own. Yeah. You know, I think that in this meeting I was in this morning, actually someone verbalized it in a way that kind of resonated with me. You know, she talked about showing up as her full self to her job. And I thought that that was- Like if she was to. No, that she does. Or, or, you know, really striving to do that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, through social media, I mean, and it's different in every space. Like, you know, I'm sure it's a little bit different in the corporate space than it is in academia, than Mm -hmm. it is in the art space. But, you know, I feel through like seeing conversations on social media and like watching people push back and like show up as them full as their full selves and say, no, like, I'm not going to. I'm not going to like let you indoctrinate me or yeah, you know, yeah, I'm not yeah. going to stay silent while you yeah. oppress me. Yeah. I think that's like imbo- like giving me a little bit more agency, I guess, yeah. and kind of like pushing back cuz like I'm definitely not like a super vocal person by nature, but it's just like you know, if you sometimes if you don't show up like in these spaces and advocate for yourself, I mean, they will bury you and say you were never here. Yeah. I mean, comp- we're looking at like complete erasure. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I think through my work, I'm trying to like build this catalog of like evidence that, you know, that we're here. And I don't want it to sound like, like apoc- apocalyptic, like, like Alicia warmly said, you know, <laughs> there are black people in the future, but yeah. I mean, if we're being real, like, you know, we are, I mean, there are active efforts to, I think, remove us from a lot of like urban spaces. And it's not just a Pittsburgh thing or it's not even just an American thing. Like it's happened in other countries like in Paris. I was just saying this earlier, you know, the -hmm. suburbs, you know, there is like a in a lot of cases that's synonymous with like, you know, blackness and brownness. The the suburbs? Okay. You know, people have been like bounced out. And so... Yeah, I think it's just important to, and I know that it's not all, it's like a privilege a lot of times to be able to like kind of speak up, you know, I'm very privy to the fact that, you know, people have to work, people have to earn money, Mm -hmm. people have to, you know, a lot of times, you know, put themselves in a position where they can take care of themselves and their family. So everybody can't rage against, isn't going to be raging against the machine, but, um, you know, if you're in a position where you can, it's just like, okay, like how to... How do we do that? Yeah. And be aware, but be aware of that privilege. And be aware of that privilege. But it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, it's exhausting to be that person who has to, like, you know, if you're, like, the only one or one of a few operating in whatever space you're in, Mm -hmm. you know, it ain't easy. Yeah. Which I'm sure, you know, you, you just attested to. Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, all those microaggressions. I think it was so little, it was a, it was a little more complicated for me because in high school my parents got a job in New Hampshire, so I I had to sort of like I was able to live in like a white high school and growing up. And then I remember when I went to college, I had to sort of relearn, like I guess very specifically the Asian American 
communities, signs and community, I guess the way that those communities work mm. and relearning that. And I remember when, when I went back to grad school, I sort of fell back into like how I operated in when I was in high school. But like I definitely saw other people struggle. And, you know, like a lot of times there's like everything had to be seen through the white framework, white lens. Yeah. Definitely. And that can be really frustrating. Really frustrating. And I mean, yeah, the microaggressions are, whew. Yeah. Whew. They never cease to amaze me. They probably, I probably should like, I know I can't keep being shocked, but sometimes it's just like, wow. Yeah. Like you really don't have any contact with anyone who's like not white. Yeah. Um, in any sub, like sort of substantial way. I mean, people, people, people who sometimes you would think would be operating in different spaces or like have a little bit more of a worldview. It's perfectly fine for a lot of folks to operate their whole lives, especially, I mean, really looking out of Pittsburgh, you know, there's folks in academia, there's folks in spaces that I'm sure we frequent mm -hmm. who you would think or you would hope would know better. Yeah. And they just really operate in these um, like vacuums, these silos of whiteness. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just like, whew. Yeah. My goodness. No, it's hard. It's, I mean, it's hard. I mean, it's also like acknowledging, you know, the systems that are in place mm -hmm. in at least a real reflective, meaningful way. But it takes the other thing. I think the other thing that you're talking about complacency, right? It takes work to actually go beyond that, right? right? You know, so if, if all your coworkers are white and like everyone who you meet is white and like you have a social community with all those people, right. you don't really have to think too much exactly. beyond that. And know? I would say even like the first part of, part of that is like acknowledgement, like mm -hmm. recognizing yeah. and like kind of taking the ego out of it. I think there's, you know, this tendency to kind of like personalize things. Yeah, yeah. But just like, okay, like this is this is my world. Like this is my community. Yeah. This is these are some things that I'm not experiencing. Yeah. Now what can be done about that? Yeah. And listening yeah. before asserting yourself yeah. and being so quick to defend. Yeah. Actually the department we're in right now, I they just two two professors just resigned. Their husband and wife, they just resigned over, um, they said they called discriminatory practices. Whoa. Um, and then the dean and the head of the program just kind of replied with like the most tone deaf mm. emails, just like, okay, we'll look into it. Like, we'll have like a uh, non mandatory discussion at this place at this time. It's like, no, this needs to be mandatory. But if it's not mandatory, then you're just going to have like, no one's going to show up or the, all the people who are probably um, mm -hmm. causing the trouble are not going to show up. You know, it's exactly. like, it, it's it starts like, with the leadership. It starts with the leadership, but then it's like, who's leading, who's facilitating this conversation? What are going to be the, you know, are there deliverables? Like, yeah. is there some way to measure the effectiveness? And usually of this there whole isn't. Event? There is, you know, a lot yeah. of times it's lip service. Yeah. And then it's, I mean, it's frustrating because like we're sitting in what this is the computer science building I think so. or department. Yeah. It's just like, okay, if you've made it to a point where you can be a dean here, you have some level of influence yeah. on not only the school, but probably, you know, the professional like computer science landscape of yeah. the city. 
And if Pittsburgh is a place that's known for this, you know, if we're attracting people around the world, you know, to these programs, and this is the type of attitude that's reflected in these programs, yeah, you start to see a ripple effect, right? right? right. And then it starts, I mean, I know I'm making some like logical leaps here, but, you know, then you can start to see why, you know, uh, these programs like aren't as diverse as they could be and why, you know, the kind of mentality of the like white collar, like academic class or um, education tech class of Mm -hmm. the city stays where it is, you know, because there's no, it's not to say that there's nobody shaking up the status quo, but the people who are in mass are, are just not being let in the door. Right. And, you know, there's people breaking down doors and I don't want to discredit that at all, but it's just like, dang, why do we have to keep breaking down the doors? Or it's hard. It's hard because the people who do break down the doors oftentimes are ostracized or if they are a person of color and then they're let in, you know, they themselves have worked the code into themselves in a way that they might not necessarily at that point be in the best position to right. want to break down doors. Right. right. And then, and then, you know, becomes, and I, and I get it. It's just like, I don't want to fight anymore. Yeah, like yeah. I'm tired or I like, I need to be able to take care of my family. Like I need to earn a certain living yeah. and you get it. Right. Cause that should be, everybody has the right to be able to do that, to Mm -hmm. earn a living, to take care of themselves and their loved ones and not have to fight tooth and nail for every little inch of ground or every little bit of progress in their career. But here we are. That's a turn. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) No, no, that's what it is, though. I mean, these are the things that I'm sure we all think about a lot. Or Or some people. By all, I mean, (laughs) you know, a lot of us in certain spaces. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Do you have anything else you want to add? Anything I missed? I'm trying to, I think we talked about a lot of the net meandering questions that I had written down. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate you reaching out and yeah. what you're doing with the podcast. I think it's awesome. And you kind of like using this like as a form of like expression for yourself, but also just, you know, getting to have conversations. Yeah. I think it's, that's awesome. We'll see. I mean, I wish I, I also made this because I wish like something like this existed for artists, you know, who exist in spaces that are predominantly white, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it's not, I mean, I know you listen to a lot of podcasts. It's not something, I don't know that even, I mean, outside of the podcast space, I don't know that it's something that's really talked about mm. a lot in a public forum. Mm. And I could be wrong. I mean, yeah. I can only speak from my experience, but it's just like, I know I've had these these conversations in private a yeah. ton. Um, and have- I've heard them brought up, but I don't know that there's anything like this that I've heard mm. where people are just kind of, you know. I mean, it's what we all talk about whenever, <laughs> whenever, right. whenever I meet another artist of color. And then, you know, like, mm-hmm. especially when I go in these residencies, like, you know, I think it's a question that always white people ask is like, do people of color make fun of white people when they're alone? And the answer is yes. All the time. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's fun. But like also there's a reason for that sort of discussion is because it's a sort of, it's a form of uh, resistance. It's a form of therapy. It's a Absolutely. form of, you know, gaining whatever power that you might have yeah. um, back in whatever small way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really a form of release. It's yeah. just like, whew, you going through this too. Like, you know, just acknowledging that, 
you know, there's someone else who's experiencing yeah. similar things to you and kind of airing that out and like galvanizing strength yeah, from that. Yeah. And then, you know, taking that to, to hit the grind again. Yeah. And also just, but also learning how to talk about it. Cause I think it's, true. it's really complicated. Right. And everyone, like we were talking about, like everyone has, you know, their own situation. Everyone has a right to also not have to fight tooth and nail. Mm-hmm. I think also like talking about race is hard. I think someone once described race as sort of talking about race as sort of like describing gravity in the mm. sense that everybody feels gravity, but like maybe one or two people in the world can actually describe what it is right. or how, how it functions. Right. And I think that most for most people, you just got to practice sort of like running. Like you never actually, you never truly get good at it unless you're an elite runner. But for most people who run, it's to maintain just averageness, but mm-hmm. it's not to actually be good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't practice it, you atrophy and... I think that's why so many white people are terrible at it because they just they don't even begin to t- practice, right? It's but, true. But also for for myself, like everyone needs to practice because as soon as you think you understand it, someone will call you out and the the rug will get pulled under your feet, and you're like, oh yeah, like I was making assumptions or I was privileged in this sense, and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I think that's a good point. Just you know being sensitive to others' humanity, but being able to like, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that sometimes, you know, I can only speak as a black woman because that's all I've ever been, but you know, it can really break you down. Um, And there, you know, I think that being in the world sometimes you know, it feels like they're active, like affronts to to your humanity. Yeah, and it's just like, well, I reject that, obviously. But you know, being able to just having a forum to talk about it and through it is important because you know, no one's silence has yeah. ever really protected them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's Audrey Lorde, right? I don't know. That's so terrible. I should know that like the back of my I head. I need to do more. Sure I need, to, I need to do more Audrey Lorde reading. More of that. Oh, yeah. She's one of the goats. Audrey yeah. Lorde's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Audrey Lorde and James Baldwin probably top there's two just, for there's me. Just, there's just too many things to read. It's I've, a lot of I've like, yeah. I mean, I just have a lot of things I need to read and yeah. they're, they're all, those two are on the backlog. Mm. You know, you want to read more Bell Hooks. There's also like all... Um, a lot of like uh, Asian American writers that I also want to read, but I just haven't gone around to it. Yeah, I wish, I wish I could just carve out like an, just add like an extra two or three hours a day. <laughs> I just feel like when I read my light, like I feel more balanced mm. and I feel more like recalibrated mm-hmm. and creative, like refreshed. Yeah, it's like something I enjoy doing. I just can't. I shouldn't say I can't find the time for it because I found time to watch uh, what? some Netflix. Oh, what you week. just started watching? Um, oh, I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> so I told you I grew up as an athlete and I stopped watching like the NFL, but I grew up really, I mean, grew up in Pittsburgh. Yeah. You like football. Yeah. I liked. My- and so you've been watching the preseason games? No, I've been watching like Last Chance You uh. and like football documentaries and docu-series yeah that's terrible i probably shouldn't have put that on the record <laughs> but um 
yeah, I, I wish I I wish I could find more time to read. But also reading is very I feel like a very active yeah. activity and sometimes depends what you read too. This is true. Like some some fiction like you read like John Grisham and not really think about it. This is true. Sometimes you can you, you need that breezy fiction, but it requires. Yeah. And also, I mean, not all like film or TV is is particularly passive. I mean, some of it, especially prestige TV, like it requires yeah, yeah, a yeah. lot of your attention. So, um, yeah, I just wish I, could, I, sh- I wish I could find more time to read. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Was- I think the. I mean, I've been watching a lot this past summer. I finished um, caught up. I'm caught up with Atlanta. I have to watch the second season. That's really good. Yeah, that's what I hear. Uh, I, oh. I, I'm all caught up with One Day at a Time. I enjoy One Day at a Time. Yeah. I didn't watch the – I probably have never seen the original. I um, haven't either. It's supposed to be all white family. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think I – I really like the reboot though, and yeah. I'm like kind of down on reboots. Not a single one is of them are Cuban, I don't believe, which that's is interesting. True. Which is probably – Problematic. Yeah, and I just started Jane the Virgin. You seen it? Yes. It's so long. I'm like it is each a lot. one is like forty but you're minutes in for a treat. Yeah, I just started, so I'm like on episode seven of the first season. There's like twenty two in the first season. There's like four four yeah. seasons. Well, and there there are fewer episodes in the later seasons. Oh, okay. But um, oh, I'm happy you're getting to know the Villanuevas. <laughs> I love Jane the Virgin. I just. I've been watching Queen Sugar, uh-huh. the latest season. I just started. Yeah, and there's a bunch I want to watch, like Insecure. <sighs> I just I saw the first Insecure. episode of Vita, which is pretty good. I'm not familiar with that one. It just it just came out on Stars. They had mm. six episodes, and uh, it's about a. I'm not sure what what land ex uh, ethnicity they are, but they're living in Boyle Heights, and it's about a mm. family. The mom dies in the first scene, and and then all of this family stuff comes out as the family converges for the um, funeral. Interesting. It sounds like that show, Brothers and Sisters, uh-huh. like nighttime soap yeah. on ABC a couple years ago. Yeah, yeah. Rich white family, and yeah, uh, yeah. But um, yeah, it's a lot of good TV on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, do you have anything else you want to talk about? You're, you're good. I think I'm good. Where can people uh, find you online? Uh, so my website and jamieandry.com, I would spell it, but I'm assuming there will be like a spelling of I'll my put, name. I'll put, a, I'll put a link. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and in the episode. Cool. And, and also the company website, 11stanley.com. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, in the streets, I'm around. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you so much. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show, Please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.